We made this. Hello and welcome to Frame to Frame, part of the We Made This podcast network. We are the podcast that take two seemingly unconnected films and slam them together like vaudeville and dignity. Always dignity. I'm Andy Williams. And I'm Sean Wilson. And this week we're talking to you about films in the Rotten Tomatoes 100% Club. So what we've done to celebrate our great 100 episodes is look at the high watermark of film criticism, which is Rotten Tomatoes, and any film that is in the 100 Club, we each chose one of them. So, unfortunately, my original pick of Paddington 2 got kicked out. Thanks, that guy. Hunt that person down with pitchforks, whoever that was. I mean, you know, whoever Honestly. the person voted that down. Yeah, foolish. Ridiculous. Um, you Utterly... haven't... Yeah, you haven't seen the unbearable weight of massive talent yet, have you? I don't think. I have not. There is a brilliant running joke about Paddington Two, which is one of the funniest things I've seen in in a while. Which is which is very very good. So, I'm really yeah. glad that you ruined that surprise. Um, well, I haven't ruined the joke. I've just said there's a joke <laughs> in it. <so. laughs> Walking spoiler yeah. strikes again. Um, I was wearing that T-shirt that you got me the other day. Actually, oh, I've been wearing that proudly. So well, <laughs> yeah. you, you have to own it at this point. Um, yeah. So, yeah, so as we mentioned, this is episode 100. It's crazy to think that we, we've managed to actually get to 100. Uh, it looked dicey there for a little while. Yeah, I mean, just as, as far as a history goes, the first episode of this podcast was published on the 21st of April 2020. So it all sort of started as as a lockdown project, as a, oh my gosh, I don't know if I'm going to be talking to my friend again. Can I try and find a way where we're going to do it constantly and we we kept it going i don't think we missed a week i think i think in like the first year we had missed maybe one week mm. you know it, it, we just kept it going and going and going it's an excuse to watch films an excuse to to talk to my friend and excuse for me to spoil things for my friend <laughs> so yeah um... like you need an excuse <laughs> yeah exactly um so yeah, it's 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 been crazy when you you look back on it, and I'm not generally one for for looking back at these sorts of things. I try and just focus on what's in front and what's to come. But when you do take that step back, it, it's quite amazing. You think we've had nine guests in total. So we've had uh, Tony Black, who is the 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 overseer of the We Made This Network. He joined us on episode fifty four. Becky joined us on uh, episode 58. Steve O'Brien joined us on episode 67. Craig McKenzie on episode 69, and he was classy enough not to make a joke about that. Uh, Matt Latham uh, joined us on episode 74. We've had M from Verbal Diorama, who was our only returning guest. She joined us on episode 77 and episode 97. Uh, the great Amon Warman joined us on episode 85. And we had Bo Nicholson on episode 87, uh, with Ellen Keld on episode 89. So thanks very much, guys, for joining us on this strange, weird little universe that we're trying to create for ourselves on Frame to Frame. Multiverse. And... It's multiverse. So... <laughs> it's <laughs> everything, everywhere, and indeed, all at yeah, once. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, just without getting too sentimental about the whole thing, it it is a good time for reflection. And uh, I've, I've really, really enjoyed doing what we've been doing. And, you know, here's to 100 more. In, indeed yeah um 100 more and let's see what themes we can come up with and what directions we can strike out in because when, when when we both alight on films that we both like that seemingly come out of left field that's what i really like um i enjoy it when that happens mm. so uh um, well 
I think we were both on pretty safe ground this week. This this you know, is having... fairly predictable. This one, yeah, yeah, <laughs> this is, yeah, yeah. <laughs> having chosen uh, films in the one hundred percent club, we probably could have gone for for films that you know we may have thought the other person might not like or whatever. But no, we we've yeah. gone straight in with Singing in the Rain and Before Sunrise. Now you know how I feel about a musical, and I know how you feel about a Richard Linklater movie. So, so so naturally we've swapped positions and I'm going to do the musical and you're going to do the Richard Linklater movie. So. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. That's that's the ones so, we chose. That's how yeah. it shook out. Yeah. Um so Sean, as we always do for the last 100 episodes, we go in chronological order. I think I mixed it up once, but that was just a, a blip in the matrix. <laughs> yeah, and my my brain almost exploded, but then I I, I recovered from that. So, yeah. <laughs> so, so why don't you kick us off with Singing in the Rain? Oh, what is there to be said about Singing in the Rain that hasn't already been said? It's obviously a masterpiece. I barely need to qualify on those terms. So 1952 um, and Musical, directed and choreographed by Gene Kelly and Stanley Donan, who had worked together several times before, co-starring Donald O'Connor, Debbie Reynolds and Gene Hagen. Really, really wonderfully infectious and funny and uplifting story about the all-important Hollywood transition from silent pictures to talking films or talkies, as they were colloquially referred to at the time, which is something I've actually explored in my soon-to-be-published book, though I don't know if I've mentioned that. Uh, the a couple of, of times. Cinema. A yeah, couple of times, yeah. Time. Well, here's, here's another uh, time. So, well, that's true. I mean, so, yeah. it's, it's, it's mad when you think back... You've written that during the course of this podcast. It, it has, yeah, yeah, it has, and and I like to think my experiences have informed it. In fact, they have. I mean, I, when I was writing it, I was thinking about some of the some of the discussions we'd had, particularly about music. You know, it was all kind of burbling there in the back of my mind to some mm-hmm. extent. But you know, this is this movie was also largely authored by the um, the composer Arthur Freed, who produced the movie and also supplied the music, including the title song "Singing in the Rain," which is actually dates from 1929. And in inverted commas, suggested this entire production. And effectively, what this movie does is it reconstitutes a lot of the songs from the so-called, uh, I believe it was called the Arthur Freed Unit. Um, or the Arthur Freed collection, which basically songs from between about 1929 and 1939. So some pre-code, pre-code um, Hollywood uh, pictures in there as well. But it reconstitutes these songs and repackages them and recontextualizes them with this brilliantly vibrant cast. Again, as I said, under the direction of Stanley Donan and the choreography of Gene Kelly. And it's a, it's just a brilliantly entertaining story about. Um, the film industry on the cusp of great change in the uh, late 1920s. So we begin with the latest premiere from uh, Monumental Pictures, a film called The Royal Rascal. And the crowd are anticipating the arrival of silent film star Don Lockwood, played by Gene Kelly, um, and his leading lady, Lena Lamont, brilliantly played by uh, by Gene Hagen, who was Oscar-nominated for the film. He's an absolute scene-stealer through and through. Mm-hmm. And you get a sense of how witty the film is right at the very beginning because there's a reporter on the red carpet and then what Lockwood does, it almost like breaking the fourth wall in a way and also very cleverly getting around what would be a massive dump of exposition in a very funny way as he kind of gives the romanticized Hollywood iteration of his life story in voiceover. But what we're seeing as we go into flashback is actually the opposite of that. We're actually seeing the grind and the kind of the hard labor of the life that he's actually led, but presented in a very funny way. 
So as he's relating this, we see the the hard graft that he, Don Lockwood, and his friend Cosmo Brown, played by Donald O'Connor, have had to go through. But it, but there's a deliberate clash with the romanticized Hollywood narration that, that he's giving. And effectively, what happened was that um, they started off as onset musicians. So Cosmo is the onset pianist. And Don was the onset violinist, and this is obviously the way it worked in silent pictures. You have like you have like live so mood music, wasn't it? It was there yeah. to try and help the actors get into the mood, get get, the get into character, yeah. And at one point, Don actually steps in to do some stunt work. The director is then really impressed, and then Don starts to move his way up the ranks, and he goes from being a stunt performer uh, into actually becoming um, a leading man. And then what's happened at the very beginning of the movie is that the the studio are attempting to package up the idea that he and Lena Lamont, Jean Hagen's character, are an item. And in fact, he really doesn't like her at all because she's unbelievably narcissistic and vain and self-absorbed with the most appallingly squeaky, like, Brooklyn accent, which the film Singing in the Rain does brilliantly because you don't actually hear her talk for about the first 15 minutes. You're like, okay, so is there a reason for this? And then when she comes in, she says, talks with this accent. And it's like, oh, right, okay. Now there's, there's a, you know, it's actually quite fortunate for her that she's a silent film star because with that voice, she's surely not got a future at all. And then the great epochal shift comes. No, silent pictures are out, talkies are in. And then everyone and they stopped. reference the jazz singer. They, they yeah, call yeah, it by Jolson. name as the, well, the turning point of the jazz singer has happened. Yeah. So everything silent was pre-jazz singer, and now everything is talking. It, 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 that's the way it was. And Cosmo yeah, Cosmo sings a few bars of Mammy when when he when he hears about it. So I assume they got Al Jolson's permission. I mean, Al Jolson doesn't come out of this looking badly. I mean, it recognizes him. It recognizes how he drew a line in the sand with the jazz singer. And it is I wrote about this in um in the book i mean the triangulation of synchronized dialogue sound and music came about with the jazz singer it, it took it took films in a new direction and i love the way that singing in the rain observes that with just enough historical detail but real affection and real humor as well and everyone is sent into an absolute tizzy because they you know it's like what how how do we synchronize our voices how do we how do we capture the sound how what people are going to hear us like talking on film and you know this this becomes a bit of a problem in don and lena's new film uh, the dueling cavalier in which it becomes clear that oh we we now have to have lena talking on camera for the first time and not only that we also have to figure out where to place the microphone in order so that we can pick up the fact that she's talking it's like i can't make love to a bush like that and um oh i mean it's just you know i can't stand him can't stand him can't stand him like you know it's just all that stuff is just brilliantly funny but alongside that you have the emergent romantic relationship with debbie reynolds character kathy selden who uh, at the beginning of the movie unwittingly rescues Dom from a flock of quite rabid, like deranged fans. And then he realizes he that literally jumps into her car. Into I her wouldn't car. call it as her yeah. rescue. He yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah. Just, it's yeah. an open top car. So he goes, ah, I'll just sit here. Let's sit here. Yeah. And she drives him away. And then he realizes that she's, um, she's a chorus girl and he becomes preoccupied. Uh, she, he becomes preoccupied with finding her again. And eventually he does, he does find her. And there is essentially a partnership is formed is both romantic and also professional at the same time. And they, they eventually realize that with Lena's voice being so awful, 
And after the disastrous premiere of the Dueling Cavalier, in which the clacking of Lena's beads is actually louder than the sound effects are louder than than the dialogue. So the way it picks up these historical details and they hit on the idea that, well, why don't we reform the Dueling Cavalier as a musical? And why don't we overdub Kathy's really beautiful singing voice over Lena's voice? And I love the way it uses this very lively, humorous framework to tell something that is fundamentally true and to actually mm. dramatise the stresses and strains that all Hollywood technicians went through at this time. And I think what I like about it, what I really like about this film, what gives it that ballast is that there is a narrative to it. There is a story that is built on historical record. It's really well structured. It's not just... It doesn't go from naught to Michael Bolton within the first 30 seconds, which is a problem that I have with so many musicals naming no names. That, I have a real problem with that. If something hits a level of shrieking hysteria within the first 30 seconds, then the, that musical has not earned the right to me to care about it. And, you know, a good story, whether it's a musical or otherwise, will build its characters up and it will earn the right to indulge in those musical set pieces. That's what Singing in the Rain does so brilliantly. You know, we it sets out its characters just well enough in the first 15, 20 minutes that when they start singing, we understand why they're singing and we understand that the songs, the set piece songs are actually extensions of their personality. And the narrative is actually being continued through the songs and it's telling us more about the characters. It's not just annoying jazz hands, blah, for the sake of it. And I, and obviously it helps that you have people of the caliber of gene kelly involved in this who was mm. you know very militant very difficult you know debbie reynolds says you know during the in the making of good morning good morning she tap danced in heels until her feet bled out because gene kelly was so tough on her but you can see that that you know making a film like this should not be enjoyable you know it obviously has to be craft it has to be you know well it goes back to the old adage especially the the one that you say quite often yeah. which is uh, a comedy shouldn't be fun to make. The exactly. more fun they have making it, the less fun it is for us to watch on screen. The harder they work on the timing, the the, the more the better it will come out in the end result, one assumes, most of the time. And this was, I mean, this was miserable for many of the cast members. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, the famous story of Gene Kelly burning up a fever whilst doing the singing in the rain scene. <laughs> um, <laughs> Donald O'Connor, either. No one's quite sure about this because it, I mean... As with anything of this level of success, it's there's lots of rumours. He was either hospitalised or he had to lie down for three days uh, after filming Make Him Laugh, which, by the way, is my favourite sequence in this entire mm, film. It's very funny, um, yeah. And Debbie Reynolds has said that the two hardest things she ever did in life was make Singing in the Rain and Childbirth. So, <laughs> you know, that's there's, there's a ringing endorsement from all three leads there. And, yeah. But you don't feel any of that on screen. You feel that they've really worked, like you said, on their timing. And it, it takes real talent and precision to get something this well-made. And there's a reason we're talking about it, what, 70 years later? It's 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 because it's utterly charming, but it's utterly charming with a brain in its head. It's got something to say. It observes possibly the most important shift in the history of movie making. You know, the shift that basically led us to where we are now with the kind of movies that we are now, with fully synchronised sound, dialogue, music... And it does it with real vitality and, you know, extraordinary choreography, which is what you'd expect when you've got the likes of Gene Kelly and Donald O'Connor involved. I love uh, Moses' poses. I think that is just such Mm. a kind of cheery sequence. What I love about that is how it's left just 
to be. There's there's no fast cutting. There's no fast editing. There's no, no. There's no tricks. There's no musical tricks to it all. You Long can just takes. see these performers doing it in such synchronicity, and you know that the talent is there. You know that the ability to do it is there. And I love that it. The direction takes a step back at that point and just let these moments happen. To be honest, I think the direction takes a step back throughout, which is the right way to do it because you know you've got you know, human special effects in the form of Gene Kelly and Donald O'Connor. You don't want to get in the way of that. And one of the problems with modern day musicals is that the, the direction imposes itself on the performances. So you can't actually get a sense of what, what the actual artist is doing in the frame because it's cut so hectically, it's lit badly. Singing in the Rain comes from a completely different era in which there was courage enough to step back and to allow the actors to become the set piece of the sequence, which I really, really admire that. Moses supposes works as with all the, co- the the comic singing set pieces because of the way the build up to the song, because the reason why that song starts is that Don is being given elocution lessons and he's doing rather well at it. While, you know, just just prior to this, we see Leon and I'm like, I can't stand him. I can't stand him. Like, and it contrasts the, the two. He's getting on really well with it. And she isn't because she's got that unbelievably that voice that can't be overcome whatsoever until they learn to dub her later on. But, you know, and then that contextualizes why they sing Moses Poses, because it's all about them having a bit of fun at the expense of the elocution professor. But it's also about Don growing into the performance of these sort of, you know, these vocal mannerisms in order so that he can effectively star in a talking picture, his first talking picture. So it makes sense. You know, the underpinning of the song makes sense, as it does with every single song in the movie. The reason why he sings Singing in the Rain is because it's an expression of love. He's fallen in love with Kathy, with Debbie Reynolds' character, and that's the way he expresses himself. And it arrives in the narrative at a point where it makes absolute sense, where we're on board with the relationship, and it's brilliant. Yeah, I mean, it's it's now hard to watch that scene without thinking of Morecambe and Wise, the singing in the rain <laughs> sequence. Um, yeah. But that aside, that's that's my own problems. Um, I mean, it's it's just an absolute classic of a film. It's been voted so often. Basically, if anyone is ever compiling a top ten films ever made list, singing in the rain should be on there. Yeah. especially if anyone's doing a top 10 musicals list like it should be on there and i think what it manages to do is it could be really trite and really navel gazing to have a film about films and you know to have these things to say about the the way that cinema changed at that time period it could be really really boring and what they managed to do both in singing in the rain and in the artist which we covered last week what they do is they tell the story of the transition from from the silent films to the talkies with such pizzazz and it's so i mean the artist clearly owes a, a massive debt to this we we sort of touched on that last week but what they they do is they make it so much fun and so entertaining for the audience like you say you when you've got gene kelly around you you're going to have some fantastic set pieces and you're going to have some really really wonderful dance sequences i was doing some research about about singing in the rain and I found out that apparently, so there's an awful lot of apparentlys, right? And there's an awful lot of sort of contradictory tales between cast members and all that sort of stuff. But I read somewhere that Gene Kelly's suit shrank between the, so they filmed the the Singing in the Rain sequence over a couple of days and his suit shrank it between the first day and the second day because it got wet. So then not only was he like properly ill, like a fever of 103 Fahrenheit, but he was then in this suit that was slightly too small and quite wet, because believe it or not, he was actually getting wet. And 
Like you just can't. Yeah, no can't CGI even in those days. <laughs> no, well, yeah. I get people thought that they'd actually sort of used milk on the water mm. to try and make the droplets look the way that it, it's not. It's backlighting, but mm. um, yeah, like I said, there's all sorts of, of, of weird things about the film. Um, one film that was influenced by Singing in the Rain, and I, I, there's tons and tons that you know good mornings referenced all over the place singing in the rain is now like a staple We're, i'm not even going to go into a clockwork orange but mm. one I, film i, I was... thought you were going to say george sampson um <laughs> yeah, i bet you weren't expecting I'm... me to reference him were you so <laughs> i was not but i'm i'm not i i don't think you're going to expect this either mm. so you know in the the sort of the, the dreamish sequence um where we see the sid Charisse character uh, yeah. it, where she's sort of wrapping her legs all around uh, Don Lockwood. And um, did you know that James Cameron is such a huge fan of uh, Singing in the Rain that he modelled the Xenomorph's legs off, off Sid Charisse? I mean, you're completely right. That is completely unexpected. I, I, didn't, <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't know that, really. I Honestly. Mean... A tap dancing xenomorph is something that I would probably like to see. Um, I mean, not? you kind of get that in Spaceballs. Well, yeah, so yeah, you do actually. Yes, I'll oh, no, not again. <laughs> so, yeah, you do. Yeah, good point. I can't believe you hit on that either. But yeah. um, I mean, like you said, what more can we say about this film? It's Singing in the Rain is just an absolute masterpiece. There's a reason that it is listed as a 100%. Like I said, there's. There's so many little stories and so many little tidbits of information about the film that it's all contradictory and who possibly knows what happened on set just from the sounds of it. It didn't all sound fun. It didn't all sound like the sort of place that you'd want to go to work. But what they made out of it is genuinely one of the greatest films of all time. I mean, even years before I saw the film, I remember when I was younger, my my mum always used to sing good morning when I when I whenever I had to get up for school she would always sing that like good morning good morning you slept the whole night through that's one of the things I remember from when I was younger actually so I kind of knew this movie before I'd even seen it years before I saw it um the other thing I want to say is Donald O'Connor is clearly the MVP of this film he is spectacularly good he is so funny and there you go so with likeable. another sports reference. And, oh yeah, exactly. I'm 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 queuing them up. I learned from the best, you see. So, uh, so <laughs> yeah, this is shout what out happened. to Amon. Yeah, Amon. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Out of hundred episodes, he was on one, and then I learned everything from him. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, no, I, 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 it's it's these this knowledge has accumulated over hundred episodes over time, um, and he is just really funny. Uh, Donald O'Connor, that is. He is. I mean, that's. I mean, that's why I love make him laugh. It's. Yeah. As as far as pure physical comedy goes, like it, that sequence is just astonishing. Like the 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 backflips that he does, the, the he does the trick that he used to do when he was much younger of sort of jumping up off the wall and doing the backflip. Like the physical comedy that that he gives us, I can watch that every single day. It's it's hilarious. I love it. And it's I mean it's reminiscent of you know your Chaplin's, your Keaton's, all that sort of stuff. But I just love the way that it's translated into into singing in the rain and you know like i said this for me it's the best sequence in the film and that is no short order that's you know it's it's something that like i said it's it's one of the greatest films of all time and i think that is probably the greatest three minutes in this film i think people underestimate how funny this film is i mean this film is funnier than most comedies 
it, it's I mean the bit at the beginning when Don gets mobbed by all the fans and then Cosmo is kind of like watching with this kind of amused expression he's like hey hey cars call me a cab all right you're a cab and it's like you know like little this little throwaway little lines like that which are just so brilliantly delivered I love this film to bits it's a masterpiece it is I mean you you knew it a bit more growing up than I did by the sounds of it though because I actually had seen um, A Clockwork Orange before I'd seen <laughs> before I'd Yikes. seen Singing in the Rain um, so yeah I was I was more familiar with the with the, the Malcolm McDowell performance shall we say but yeah like I said it's, it's one of the greatest films of all time it wasn't a massive hit initially on release um, it was budgeted at two and a half million dollars and it took 7.2 million dollars at the box office so it you know it was it was a hit but it wasn't sort of people didn't look at it and even critically people didn't look at it and say you know what this is one of the great films of all time this is this is an all-time this is going to go down as as an absolutely world-class like that's not really what happened um it was only really later on kind of like with it's a wonderful life that people came to it the more it was syndicated on american television then it just become up and up and up and and eventually people saw it for the the masterpiece that it, it truly is and I just find that very, very interesting, the fact that it at the time wasn't as, as lauded. I mean, it was nominated for two Academy Awards, winning neither of them. Um, it was nominated for Best Supporting Actress for Gene Hagen, as you mentioned earlier, and the Best Scoring of a Musical Picture uh, for Lenny Hayton, which um, we haven't yet touched on the, the score, believe it yeah. or not. It's, I mean, I, th- I think it gets overlooked because of the, you know, the, 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 the use of the free unit songs, as I mentioned, which came from the stable of Metro Goldwyn Mayer. I think that that completely overshadows, well, or, or not as the case, maybe if it was Oscar nominated, the score. Uh, we also should mention uh, Nasio Herb Brown as well, who wrote the music of the songs. You know, they're after Freed's mm. lyrics, but, but Nasio Herb Brown did, did the music. So, um yeah i can't say enough good things about this movie i don't think anyone could say enough good things about this movie no i i don't think i have ever met anyone that has seen it and not loved it mm, yeah and um, that's that's a, a testament to the film you know just to bring it full circle back to what you said at the beginning you know i've got very strong opinions about musicals i think musicals can really blow hot or cold with me and i think watching this again made me realize i like narrative musicals i'm not a fan of sung through musicals i like musicals that take a breather and that that allow the characters to build without the actors like bellowing in your face like every 30 seconds which i find quite exasperating and quite tiring i mean you know it helps that singing in the rain is very self-effacing and very funny and it's really light on its feet as opposed to really like sort of just chundering along like you know so many modern day musicals do i I was waiting for you to to kick either les mis or the greatest showman well you've you've brought them up for me so i mean (laughs) yeah so so there we go (laughs) so yeah but yeah i mean like it was the 10th highest grossing movie of 1952 so you know like it wasn't a massive runaway success like you would expect but you look back now and it's it's like I said, very, very clearly one of the greatest films of all time. You know, Sight and Sound put it in their top fifty. Empire ranked it as the eighth best movie of all time. Like it there's no no need for me to try and sell the benefits here of of singing in the rain. It is rated a hundred percent on Rotten Tomatoes, and that is why we covered it this week. The other film we're going to be looking at is the Richard Linklater 1995 romantic drama. So it is just his third feature-length film, and it's Before Sunrise, and it stars Ethan Hawke and Julie Delpy as Jesse and Celine, respectively. 
And what it does is it tells the story of two young people who just happened to cross paths. Julie Delpy's Celine is on her way to Paris and uh, Jesse is going to Vienna just to catch his flight back. And they meet on a train. And what you have here is just basically a quick romance between these two people. It's set over the course of one night and they just get to know each other and they muse on, to quote uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, they muse on life, the universe and everything. And I love Before Sunrise. Like, I'm not going to go into the, the exact narrative details of this scene, they talk about this, and this scene, they talk about that. They just spend time together. And that is the, the real draw of the film for me, is that spending time with these two characters as they wander through the streets of Vienna and they bump into various people. They Jesse tries to get a bottle of wine um, for himself and Celine, so they sit and they, they drink this. And yeah, they just spend that time. And eventually, over the course of the, the film, you find out more and more about these two characters and about where they are in their lives. And, you know, neither of them particularly wants to, to promise to write to each other or promise to stay in touch um, until we get the, the final scene of the film. So what you have with Before Sunrise is, for me, a, a perfect meditation on being in your early 20s, of feeling like you're a child in an adult world. That that The moment of your early 20s where you become an adult for the first time and you think now I've got to do something you know Jesse is American he's he, he's kind of, we'd probably call it now a gap year right but in mm. the, the mid 90s it wasn't that he was he'd gone to Madrid to visit his girlfriend after trying to do the long distance thing with her that hasn't worked so then he's left early and you know he's kind of traveling the railways across Europe and he meets Celine and yeah it's just such an odd notion in your early 20s I, I, I don't know if you ever had this but for me in your early 20s you sort of go right well now what I finished school I finished university I'm I'm now in the world of work I'm, I'm an adult and I, I'm not I'm still a child like what's going on and I think that's what the two characters begin to encapsulate at the the start of the film I mean it is a fable right it is the whole idea of this film is it's very dreamlike and it's kind of the idealized meet cute. Like they, they kind of know that they're in a fantasy. They know there's an artifice to this situation. And, and Jesse even references it in the dialogue. He says that, um, you know, he feels like they're walking around in a dream. It doesn't feel real to him. And, you know, they, they had an awful lot of input into their characters, um, both Ethan Hawke and Julie Delpy. they, you know, they, they scripted it. So I think an awful lot of the time when, when we talk about the Before Trilogy, people overlook the performances because these are written characters. This isn't improvised dialogue. They have come up with the dialogue, but it's not improvised. They they know what they're doing. They know how they want to do it. And I just, I yeah, I could go into several different levels on this film, whether that's discussing... Uh, the originator of the the film with Richard Linklater and how it all began, uh, the influences of the French New Wave, uh, how we you know we managed to get to, to Ethan Hawke and Julie Delpy, and the, the sort of meanderings and philosophical musings of the characters. But before we kind of go into any of that or, or any more of that, um, what is it about the film that you love? Um, I think it's a triumph on so many different levels. As with all of Richard Linklater's best movies, it's a triumph of naturalism. You, you don't think that you're watching a schematic drama in which dialogue has been 
placed into the mouths of the actors. You do genuinely think that these actors are living and breathing these characters and you are literally walking there alongside them. There's the bit early on after they get off the train in Vienna where they're like, okay, what what do we do? And they meet the two actors who say that mm. oh we're 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 in we're in the stage play about the cow and then Ethan Hawke goes um, Jesse goes what is that a real cow and he's like no I I I play I play the cow and it, it's just like a little incidental conversation and it's literally like they literally just caught two people on the fly and and just had the actors speak to them every single conversation in the movie whether it's been Jesse and Celine or Jesse and Celine and other people resonates like that. There's the other bit where they meet the poet who takes words from people and has assembled, who's assembled his poem out of words. And it's just so astonishingly naturalistic. It's so believable. Mm. And it's all to do with a lot of people just think directors are responsible for the visual look of a film. I mean, a director is responsible for fostering utmost trust in his actors and fostering the absolute right atmosphere on the set so the actors can do their job. And Richard Linklater is obviously a master at that, as has been later demonstrated the likes of Boyhood and Bernie and countless other movies. And it's interesting watching it again because Richard Linklater is so synonymous with Texas, with you know movies set in and around Texas, mm-hmm. anything like Date Dazed and Confused and and Bernie and and other films. A slacker, yeah, yeah, slacker, yeah. And I uh, remember recently Apollo Eleven and a Half as well, which is a really really lovely film. Just went live recently on on Netflix, but he. As somebody like me who has interrailed around Europe, particularly at the around the ages that the characters are in the film, he really does get that sense at the beginning of the movie that when you get off the train in a city that you don't know, the sense of anticipation and the sense of, right, anything can be possible in this situation. What do we do? Where do we go? Obviously, in this, in this instance, it's got a romantic slam eventually. Mm. But that sense of untapped potential that you get when you get off a train in a European city. And he catches that brilliantly, but in a very, very discreet way. Like we said, with Singing in the Rain, the direction takes a step back, as it should do in a story like this. And I know that Linklater draws a lot of comparisons with the likes of cinema of Eric Roma, who is the master, the European master of these very, almost like laid back, meandering, like naturalistic dramas that absolutely place the dialogue between the characters at, at, at the, at the centre of everything. Um, mm. I it's a it's a really impressive. I mean, what's really impressive about it is that it's a brilliant film, but it's probably in terms of the trilogy that it eventually spawned, it's probably the least impressive out of the three of them, while still being deeply impressive in its own right. This is a trilogy that got better and better as it went mm. along, which is really interesting. I think. Yeah, so, I mean, you and I have have had the chat before about what we deem a perfect trilogy, and this is kind of the right answer. Like yeah. it, Toy Story was the right answer until they ruined it. <laughs> the <fourth> but, <laughs> yeah. Indiana Jones was a right answer oh, and then that got ruined. Yeah. Yeah. Um so yeah, you know, it's I, I think that touching on what you said, Linklater is a very humanist director. He he adores people and before sunrise is about the beauty of the human connection. It's about just being somewhere with another person and seeing what happens with that. And as it happens in this film, as you mentioned, there's there's a romantic element. But what it's more about for me is it's the impact of the look. It's the glance. It's a touch. It's the feeling of a moment. And that's what Linklater manages to capture. And my my favourite sequence in this film is when they're in the record shop and the sexual tension just 
absolutely skyrocket when they listen to to the song by Kath Bloom. Um, the the close up of the two faces, one of them is always glancing and the other one isn't, and they didn't know what the song was going to be. Linklater had picked out the the song, but neither Julie Delpy nor Ethan Hawke knew what song was going to play, and you can see them both really listening and not only as actors but as characters. They're really taken in, and that's with. The, the tension between the two of them, like you said, the, the direction takes that step back and it just doesn't try anything particularly showing. It just stays there and you watch their faces and you flip between them. You look at both of them and you see how how this tension is, is growing between them. And it's it's such a beautiful scene. It's a really, really wonderful song to, to go with it. And I find it really difficult to talk about um, to talk about Before Sunrise because, you know, on, on first viewing... When, so I watched this as a teenager, and I really identified with with Ethan Hawke's Jesse, like his romantic earnestness and yearning, and you know, it's, I saw an awful lot of myself as as a younger person in there. And as I've grown up, I can see sort of how self absorbed and insecure he is. <laughs> so that kind of yeah. you know, I mean, it's, it's difficult to talk about. It is these these are movies that, that your emotional reaction changes. However, however, the older that you get, and I think that's that's actually quite fascinating. And obviously, that's the arc of the trilogy. As the trilogy mm-hmm. goes on and the characters get older, it becomes more fractious, more bitter, and arguably more interesting. As as you see what happens with Ethan Hawke and Julie Delpy in Before Midnight, it becomes much more of a complicated, loaded affair. And this is what I mean about it being a trilogy that gets better. It gets better because it gets richer. Mm-hmm. And it gets more mm. dynamic and it gets more complicated. Whereas in this, well, they're one, more lived in at that yes, point. You yeah. know, they we we had nine years between each film, so yeah. we had the the time period uh, between them where we had two thousand and four was before sunset and um, two thousand and thirteen was before midnight. So we had nine years between each one of them, and you know they they grew as people. So you know we're looking at them in before sunrise as young early twenties. And then they're in their thirties after having had sort of the, the bit more distance between them. And then we look at them having been together for, for that time in before midnight and, and the impact that, that has. And what I find really interesting is that the way that it kind of flashes forward where Jesse says to Celine, look, jump ahead to yourself 20 years in your life and, and see where you are. And that's where she ends up. Mm. It's just, she ends up like that with Jesse it's, it's quite fascinating they put that line in because obviously they couldn't have known when they made Before Sunrise that this would this would sequentially leap ahead like every mm. like nine years. There there is there is that really fascinating like foreshadowing, like almost ironic foreshadowing in there. I mean, one of the things I really like about this film, I mean, you can clearly see how the respective how the actors have respectively invested themselves in the characters because I mean this this comes out more. I think when one has done a lot of traveling and where one can pick up more and more cultures, the fact that Jesse is the American is very self-possessed, very brash. He kind of has to have the kind of like the final words on everything. Yet at the very beginning, when they're on the train, Celine has got that very playful, ironic European, like French sensibility. And, you know, he asks her, how do you speak very good English? And then she says, well, how do you speak very good English? And he does, he doesn't get the joke you know, because mm. he's American and he's quite obtuse and that kind of irony is kind of lost on him. That is really accurate. That is, I mean, it is mm. so accurate. And little details like that, you can see how the actors basically overwork the script and put themselves, put their respective cultures, their respective backgrounds into the 
into the movie and that dynamic plays through the fact that all the way through the movie he's kind of he's quite glib and he feels the need to kind of almost outline everything and she's kind of more freewheeling she's you know they're both very neurotic and they've got their own anxieties and their own fallibilities but she's kind of more freewheeling and philosophical and maybe like a bit deeper in her thoughts i mean without wishing to stereotype all americans he's more on the surface you know <laughs> it's kind of that's the way he sees things as he wants to see them and you know yeah. he has to keep coming out with these anecdotal stories about you know or, you know i saw my i saw my grandmother's ghost through like you know through the water in the, the hose and everything and it's kind of you know, it's very real because mm. that's what some people are like, not necessarily just at people from America, but some people do have to make sense of their lives with these fairly kind of anodyne, banal, like, anecdotes. And the fact that you do genuinely feel like you are being dropped into an ongoing conversation between two people is really quite wondrous, I think. It's it's magical. Yeah, and I think that what Linklater does is really allow these two actors to to shine. And they do have such fantastic chemistry like that. It, it wouldn't work. We we are comfortable with them as characters because they are comfortable with each other immediately, even on the train when when they sort of overhear another couple arguing and, and Jesse asks Celine, well, what were they saying? Even at that moment, because they are so lived in with each other and so so comfortable with each other then that that kind of comes across to us and what struck me this time watching it ahead of of this podcast was that it was almost structured like a musical in so much as the, the there aren't songs there aren't dances there aren't sequences or set pieces but what there is is dialogue and what there is is story so we have kind of the meandering conversations and then suddenly we'll go off and we'll we're in a completely new direction like a, a new monologue is is the song that we were hearing like the way that it kind of ebbs and flows in it i think something that you can always say about the the greatest films is whenever you watch it you get something new out of it and just this time the thing that struck me was that it felt musical in its in its how it was put together and and how how it makes its audience sort of relax. Like, like you said, with singing in the rain, you, you get to know the characters, you spend a bit of time with them, and then suddenly bang monologue. And then suddenly bang, like kind of that this film's version of a set piece, because you know, it's, it's not showy. It just spends time with these two people. And yeah, the fact that it's kind of based on a real incident it says something about Richard Linklater, doesn't it? That he, um, it, the, it has its basis in in a meeting that he had in a Philadelphia toy shop, and he spent all night walking and talking with the the woman. Um, unfortunately, the story has a, an extremely sad ending when he found out that she passed away in uh, a motorcycle accident, and he dedicated um, one of the later films to her because without her, this this trilogy wouldn't be there. And I've not read Ulysses, but from what I understand, there is an awful lot of Ulysses in Before Sunrise in that they both take place on the same day, on June the 16th. They involve a journey around a single city, including a visit to a graveyard. And Jesse's real name is actually James, the writer of Ulysses being James Joyce. Uh, he actually also spent a long time wandering around cities in Europe. So I think that there is a, a lineage there, whether that, that was conscious or not, who knows. But um, yeah, I just... I, 
I can't say enough good things about how luxuriating it is to spend time with these these two people, especially I think in the first two films, because there's more hope, there's more mm. idealism, and and then the reality kind of sets in with the the third film. And I love the third film. I think Before Midnight might be the best of the trilogy, but it's not. It's it's a different kind of watch to these first two. It's hard. It's harder to watch because it's more real. Because the mm. idea of disillusionments and disappointments and anxieties catches up with these characters mm-hmm. and you know those anxieties obviously aren't formed in this first film one because the characters are younger two because they don't they haven't known each other for long enough for those anxieties to be formed but i think it's a testament to how brilliant before sunrise is that when they do say goodbye to each other at the end it is a genuine wrench i mean that's how that's how brilliant mm. the acting and the writing and the direction is you know you've spent these characters have spent relatively little time together we've spent relatively little time in their company and yet it is still a wrench when when mm-hmm. they when they say goodbye to each other and there's um you know it's like the little like you said the little half glances the fact that you know the little half gestures that you know that julie delpy might might she might do like a little half turn as if to, to go, right am i getting on this train or am i am i staying here or like what is it the little 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 nuances like that which are you know really really impressive and i have to say the the closing montage of this film that goes in reverse order of all the places that they visited over the course of that of that one afternoon evening that is one of my the best endings to any film that i've mm-hmm. seen you know go it moves back through all the places that that they went to now vacant but now mm-hmm. almost like encoded with memory it encoded with the memories that they're going to share together and that is just mm-hmm. magisterially brilliant and it is so so good and it is just such subtle direction it's taking the location and really bringing it to life isn't it it's, it's yeah. making us as an audience feel the way that the characters felt about being in that place at that time and vienna will always be special to these two people yeah but there will now be elements of vienna where if if anyone who's seen this film and has loved this film would go there they'd go oh that's where jesse and celine did mm. x y z and it's really taking a, a sense of location and, and like you said it's just absolutely wonderful direction by Linklater I mean it's I mean it's about memory because it plays on a very universal truth which is that places do become bound up with memory if you visit somewhere and you have an important moment whatever whatever reason it might be whether it's romantic whether it's philosophical whatever that place and no matter how ordinary it might be will, will stick with you and the idea of just a park with an abandoned wine bottle in the center it's like that that's their that's their park you know that's gonna that's gonna stick with them and it's just brilliant it does owe more to the european tradition than it than it does to the maybe american mm-hmm. tradition i'm not saying that american yeah. movies can't be subtle but because they can yeah, obviously just, yeah it, it's very french new wave isn't it it's very yeah. a woman is a woman it's very godard Truffaut, those sorts of people and you mentioned roma as well earlier yeah I mean, I love uh, one of the conversations I really like that they have, which got me thinking again, was when they're on the tram just after they've got to Vienna. And, um, you know, they say, have you ever been in love? And I kind of thought, what would my reaction to that be? Because and this isn't a sign of how good the film is, that it gets you thinking about a fictional conversation, because these are the kind of concepts that it, that it throws up. And my answer mm. to that would have been, well, there are different forms of love. You know, there is parental love, you know, I would say, because mm. I say no love is, is more important than the one I have with my parents. 
And, you know, and then it randomly brought to mind a, a, a quote that Morgan Freeman said to Empire magazine about the Shawshank Redemption, where he said the Shawshank Redemption is a platonic love affair between two men. You know, it's a love story. And, yeah. you know, it's a, it's a sign of how good Before Sunrise is that it can kind of dredge up all these thoughts, I think, really. Absolutely. But, and it it what they give you is the platform with which to think about these things and that that's kind of what the film does like i said it's, it, he's a very humanist filmmaker and he he really wants to get to the heart of what it means to be a human and that's what i think that the, i think that's the driving force between the, the three sort of main creative forces throughout this trilogy is to to understand who people are and how they feel and why they feel what they feel and yeah it it, it would absolutely spark that that kind of debate between them and you think of the you think of the landscape that it was released in as well you know when you look at romantic comedies of the 1990s we're talking like your muriel's weddings your sleepless in seattle's you've got male pretty woman four weddings and a funeral whilst you're sleeping like these are far more traditional notions of what a romantic comedy is and okay there's there's moments where this is extremely earnest before sunrise can be really really earnest but there's also moments where it is quite funny and seeing these characters interacting with each other and the naturalism that they have is it's funny. It's, it's entertaining and it's, it's really, really good company and similar to, to singing in the rain, actually on initial release, it wasn't a, a, a massive, huge box office smash. It wasn't something that, that people would, you know, queue around the block to try and go and see. It was, it was a Sundance film. It was released in, in uh, Sundance in January of 1995. And it kind of got its, its words of mouth from there. And it's grown and grown over time to the extent where, like you said, we, we had uh, Before Sunset then in 2004 and Before Midnight in 2013. As the, the pattern goes, we would be due a film in 2022. However, they the three sort of creative forces behind it in, in Ethan Hawke, Julie Delpy and Richard Linklater have kind of said, you know what, we, we couldn't find the right story. We're not there yet. So whether they continue with the, the nine year, they may have shot it in secret just to, to try and throw everybody off. But, you know, I, I think that as a trilogy, it kind of ends there. And we should also give uh, give some credit to Richard Linklater's uh, writing partner, Kim Krasan, who you know she originated the the story and the characters of before sunrise and before sunset so you know she was a, a main creative force within the the first one and then again in the the second but um these characters Jesse and Celine absolutely belong to Ethan Hawke and Julie Delpy and the world itself belongs to Richard Linklater if or when they decide to do an after trilogy or whether they decide to do before midday or whatever if they don't do anything I'm okay with that. If they do, I'm there for it. Well, it's interesting because because I, I thought I I was trying to think if I if I read about this and I had so apparently Linklater is is doing an adaptation of the musical Merrily We Roll Along, which he's planning to shoot over the next twenty years. So he's basically mm-hmm. extending the idea of Boyhood, which was done over twelve years. That will be very very interesting. It's got Blake Jenner, Beanie Feldstein, and um, Ben Platt as well. So that will be interesting. So I can, I can only imagine that might have put the kibosh on the idea of doing another before movie, or maybe not, because Linklater often does his projects simultaneously. So, well, they, I mean, they they had met for it, and they they had sort of discussed ideas and, and been in touch about it. But um, 
from what I can gather from the the research that I've done, is that kind of, they they couldn't come up with an actual proper story. Um, there were rumours that Julie Delpy had just flat out said no, she didn't want to do one. She then came out and clarified that look, it's not that I don't want to; it's just that it has to be right. And right now, we don't have what's right. Mm. So they they clearly have an earnestness and a, re- a reverence for these characters, and I just think it's. For me, it, it's one of my favourite films of all time. Whereas I would quite happily sit there and say anyone that doesn't like um, Singing in the Rain doesn't really understand Singing in the Rain. I can understand why someone wouldn't like Before Sunrise. I just would think they're wrong. Yeah, I I, I really, really like the film. I mean, the, the little details in, in the physical performances are brilliant. There's the bit when they go to the Prata and it, the way Ethan Hawke basically... Acts. I mean, I think this will resonate if you if you're a guy, really. The, the way his mind is quite clearly ticking in that sequence. The idea I'm on the Prada with a beautiful woman in Vienna. It's sun. It's sunset, mm-hmm. and you can see from the way he's looking at Julie Delpy's character that in his mind he's building this up as the great romantic moment in which he wants to go in and kiss her. And obviously, they ultimately consummate that kiss. Uh, mm-hmm. And but you you can see the way his mind is working, the way he's acting it, the way he's glancing at it, and it's so it's I mean it's got scarily on the money in terms of the way that that young that any young guy that would act in that in that situation. It's one of many many very very plausible moments that just enriches this movie. The sort of moments that you get all the way through this trilogy. Mm. Um, it is know, really like remarkable. we said the the perfect trilogy. It's there's not one film where you look at and go, hmm, not so great, because the effusiveness with which we've given before Sunrise, and you've already mentioned, is possibly the weakest of the three. Mm. So, you know, when you consider this was actually Linklater's third big film, like he'd made It's Impossible to Learn to Plow by Reading Books um, with, you know, very little dialogue. That's kind of the first feature film, but Slacker is the one that people would point to as, as Linklater's first film. Then Dazed and Confused, and then Before Sunrise. And again, one of the things we've spoken about before is a, a, a run of a director, a three-film run, and that's that's up there with anybody. Slacker, Days and Confused, Before Sunrise. Yeah. So next week will be episode 101, and don't worry, we're not putting everybody into Room 101. We will be looking at films starring a 100-year-old character, so we're taking this 100 theme and running with it. Um, so we are really looking forward to that one. One, I think, is a... Uh, a very very well-known film to the extent everyone that is listening to this will have seen it the other one not so much um and i haven't actually seen that one myself yet so i'm uh i'm looking forward to, to diving into that one um so the theme for next week's episode will be films with a 100 year old character we always say we're a proud part of the we made this podcast network you can find out an awful lot more about the network on instagram twitter facebook the website which is we made this network.com you can also get in touch with us on Instagram, Twitter, Letterboxd, Facebook, or you can drop us an email. All the information on how to do that is within the show notes. If you could also give us a five-star rating on whatever platform you are listening to us on, that would be absolutely fantastic and just help get the word out there a little bit more. If you do like the episode as well, then do feel free to, um, to tweet about it, tag us in everything, tag us on Instagram, all that sort of stuff, um, just again to, to help get the word out there because, hey, we're 100. That only happens once. That'll happen a second time when we get to 200. But that's, I mean, we're talking two years' time. We'll be the first human beings to live to 200, <laughs> figuratively speaking. So, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. But, yeah, so um, 
so yeah, I've, I've really enjoyed doing the, the previous 100 episodes and, you know, here to 100 more, right? Yes, here, here. So until next week, where we're talking about films with a 100-year-old character, I'm Andy Williams. And I'm Sean Wilson. And please continue on listening to some of the other great shows on the We Made This podcast network. Bye-bye. Elsewhere on We Made This. Shipwrecked and Comatose, a Red Dwarf podcast. This was one you requested, Matt. Was there any particular reason? Part of it is because it meant that I got to get onto Out of Time. <laughs> oh, OK, so that was the reason. Right. <laughs> Yeah, now, um, so yeah, ask me that question again when we do episode two of season ten. I think I know what you're talking about on the, on that particular um, episode that you might want to be on. Uh, episode one, yeah. <laughs> yes. But also, I think I'm quite a big Rimmer fan, and I always find Rimmer-centric episodes interesting, dependent on their quality. And this and the next episode... And I don't really want to go into something that is more relevant for next episode. Free with this month's issue. Talking about double bass, do you ever play double bass? No, I have touched a double bass, but I've never actually played it. <laughs> I, I'll stick with I'll stick with a five string Warwick, and I'll be all right. I, the only time I've ever played one was uh, the short period I was at, at university. They've got one in the music room there, and I used to play it on its side like a normal bass. Although I'm nowhere near as big as Pete Steele from Typo Negative, so it was even more ridiculous when I did it than, than when he does it. Yeah, I, I, I like, you know, A New Hope. I like uh, um, Strikes Back. I like The Last Jedi. I think Revenge of the Sith is pretty good. But, like, Rise of Skywalker can just... Rise of Scar- Skywalker is terrible. <laughs> yeah, you, terrible. Know, you know what I mean? On, so, on, on our podcast, we're big fans of The Last Jedi, and we do not like Rise of Skywalker at all. <laughs> oh, maybe I'll fit right in then. Maybe you'll fit right in. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, I, I can offer maybe a controversial take. Like, for example, I think The Return of the Jedi is not good. Get out. Get out. <laughs> hey, get man, out. this is my podcast. You get out. <laughs> Check out all of these shows and more on the We Made This podcast network.